Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled Political Illusions and Biblical Realities, Ten Reminders for Election Day, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November the 12th, 2006. This week, many Americans will go to the polls to vote in midterm elections. So will many Christians. Although the religious right conflates these two groups as if they were the same, they're profoundly different. Engaging the political powers and living as a Christian provokes intractably divided loyalties. So, for Election Day this Tuesday, I've prepared my own Christian Voter's Guide with 10 points. Number one, the lectionary psalm for this week provides a stark warning. We read in Psalm 146, 3 and 4, Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. <clears throat> There's a tragic irony in the futility of politics that nevertheless solicits our absolute allegiance. The only place in the entire Bible where God laughs is at this inverse relationship between the pomposity of politics and its ultimate impotence. We read in Psalm 2, verse 4, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Number two, the Old Testament is remarkably negative when it comes to political power, no matter who reigned. 1 Samuel 8 narrates the emergence of Israel's centralized royal power. The people wanted a king, quote, like the other nations, end quote. Samuel objected to their desire to mimic the pagan nations. He went to God in prayer, but then was rebuffed by the people. So he ceded to their requests, but warned them of the harsh consequences to follow. The government would conscript their children for wars, make them domestic slaves, confiscate their land, and levy exorbitant taxes. Israel's first king, Saul, did all this and more. His successors were worse. The political panorama of first and second kings includes the reigns of 40 kings and one queen in the 400 years from the death of David to Israel's exile to Babylon in 586 BC. Only two kings received unqualified approval by the narrator, Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18.3 and Josiah in 22 verse 2. Otherwise, with monotonous regularity, over 30 times the narrator rendered the ominous verdict that a king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Instead of the glorification or celebration of political power, his history of politics is uniformly pessimistic. Number three, whereas states must act out of brutal self-interest, Jesus calls his followers to act out of self-sacrifice. He invites us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love our enemies instead of kill them, and to place others' interests ahead of our own. 
The warrior politician, observes Robert Kaplan in Warrior Politics, must adopt a pagan ethos. Like Machiavelli, the politician does bad in order to accomplish good, promotes the necessary and not the nice, sanctions deceit to conduct war, refuses humanitarian intervention when no national interest is at stake, or slaughters many people in order to secure economic interests. The Christian, it would seem, has two choices, withdraw from this unsavory realm or enter the fray at the risk of losing your soul. Number four, when the Roman state arrested Jesus and he stood before Pontius Pilate, he insisted, my kingdom is not of this world, John 18:36. He never backed a political party. He never proposed a political plan even though he invited every person to seek first his kingdom, Matthew 6.33, and to side with the poor, the vulnerable, and the disenfranchised. Number five, when Judas betrayed Jesus and one of his followers drew his sword to defend him, Jesus warned, all who draw the sword will die by the sword, Matthew 26.52. Contrary to claims that violence can be redemptive or meritorious, violence always begets more violence. This certainly includes in questions the death-dealing militarism of so many governments, past and present, including our own. Number six, blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 9. War, torture, domination and exploitation, and the propaganda that makes them possible are causes for repentance, not celebration. The disparity between what our country spends on war making to kill and degrade human life, and what we spend to enrich and ennoble human life, as on health care, education, science, or the environment, constitutes a will to death. Let us pray for more peacemakers. Number seven, if Jesus experienced the intoxicating power of political glory as a satanic temptation, Matthew chapter four, eight and nine, then we should expect the same. Consider this inscription from Asia Minor from the year nine BC that describes Caesar Augustus. The most divine Caesar, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. Whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the Emperor Augustus, who being sent to us as a savior has put an end to war. The birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news. End quote. The Greek word here is evangelion, commonly translated the gospel. Allegiance to such grotesque idolatry is precisely what political power demands and what the follower of Jesus can never give. The early Christian confession that Jesus is Lord included an explicit political claim. Caesar is not Lord. Number eight. When Mary was pregnant, the birth announcement of Jesus included an ominous prophecy directed at the authorities and powers. 
we read in Luke chapter 152, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Number nine, the Roman state executed Jesus as a subversive threat and then attacked the church for 300 years. At first, these persecutions were sporadic, localized, or at the whim of an emperor like Nero. But under Decius, who reigned from 249 to 51, persecution became a systematic and universal state policy. Diocletian, 284 to 305, meted out the last, most severe, and most cruel terror. In his book, Ecclesiastical History, the historian Eusebius describes the imperial edict issued by Diocletian in March of the year 303. It was enacted that the meetings of the Christians should be abolished, churches be razed to the ground, that the scriptures be destroyed by fire, that those holding office be deposed, and they of their household deprived of freedom if they persisted in their profession of Christianity. Only with the edict of toleration issued by Galerius in the year 311 did these persecutions of Christians end. Thus, the early Christians understood Babylon in the book of Revelation to be Rome, the great whore, dragon, beast, and, quote, the city of power, end quote. In number 10, we should never confuse the relative claim upon us to render to Caesar what is Caesar's with the absolute and unconditional claim to render to God what is God's. Matthew 22, verse 21. The infamous peace activist and Jesuit priest Daniel Berrigan spent time in prison for his civil disobedience against government policies on racism, nuclear arms, and most famously, Vietnam. Along the way, he's written numerous books of poetry and prophetic protest. His credo, though, is a refreshing reminder about politics as we approach Election Day. Listen to Berrigan. I can only tell you what I believe. I believe I cannot be saved by foreign policies. I cannot be saved by the sexual revolution. I cannot be saved by the gross, na gross national product. I cannot be saved by nuclear deterrence. I cannot be saved by aldermen, priests, artists, plumbers, city planners, social engineers, nor by the Vatican, nor by the World Buddhist Association, nor by Hitler, nor by Joan of Arc, nor by angels and archangels, nor by powers and dominions. I can only be saved by Jesus Christ. I like to update and expand Berrigan's repudiation of false hopes and misplaced trusts. I cannot be saved by George Bush or Jesse Jackson, by Hillary Clinton or Condi Rice, nor by their successors or opponents. I cannot be saved by Greenpeace or the ACLU, by Focus on the Family or by Promise Keepers, all of which, of course, returns us to where we began with the psalm for this week. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope 
is in the Lord his God. Psalm 146, verse 5. And now for further reflection. What is your own greatest political temptation? Number two, why do you think scripture is so negative about the state and political power? Number three, which scriptures above speak to you most forcefully and why? And then finally, for further reading and reflection, see the book by Jim Wallace, God's Politics, Gregory Boyd, The Myth of a Christian Nation, and finally the book by Jacques Ellul, The Political Illusion. For books this week, I review The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason by Sam Harris, New York, W.W. W. Norton, 2004, 348 pages. My goal in writing this book, says Harris in his epilogue, has been to help close the door to a certain style of irrationality. While religious faith is the one species of human ignorance that will not even admit of the possibility of correction, it is still sheltered from criticism in every corner of our culture. Judging from the book's commercial success, many readers are interested in Harris's Demolition Derby. The book has enjoyed a long ride atop the New York Times bestseller list, it won the 2005 Penn Martha Albrin Award for First Nonfiction. Harris's shorter sequel, Letter to a Christian Nation, now sits at number six on the bestseller list. In its near cousin, The God Delusion, by the Oxford atheist Richard Dawkins, ranks number eight. Harris tries to make the case that society has been far too tolerant of religion which he construes as a form of mental illness in, quote, the most prolific source of violence in our history, end quote. For the most part, he treats all religions with equal disdain, although separate chapters focus on Christianity, namely the Inquisition, witch burning, and the Holocaust, and then a chapter on Islam. If you paid attention in high school, you probably encountered his two central points, that religion is, number one, intellectually irrational, and number two, morally barbaric. One of the most irritating features of Harris's book is his unctuous and overly earnest tone that suggests that he's the first person, either friend or foe, to grapple with these two important problems. He's also set the bar far too high to succeed. In practice, he believes that religion never submits itself to rational discourse and evidentiary claims, which is false. Worse, he argues that in principle, quote, every religion, every religion preaches the truth of propositions for which no evidence is even conceivable, end quote, which is ridiculous. In his last chapter, though, where he tries to establish a spirituality of consciousness, he appears to give himself a free pass, admitting that many of these important spiritual matters are genuinely mysterious. In fact, they're open to scientific inquiry, he says, and not absent of empirical data like the genuine experiences of mystics. 
Harris never argues for atheism, and he argues against Richard Rorty's pragmatic relativism, although he tries to rebut the harsh criticisms of atheists who think that in his last chapter he concedes far too much to spirituality. His book never engages any of the important discussions about atheism, about warrant for belief, about scientists who believe, or about specifically religious believers who share his concerns about fringe fundamentalisms that do, in fact, foment violence and peddle hocus-pocus. At times, his argument wanders far off track, as when he appeals to the My Lai Massacre in Vietnam, the legalization of marijuana, and the conservative views of Justice Scalia. The book is littered with sweeping generalizations, gross exaggerations, appeals to extremist examples, and specious reasoning, as when he tries to construe the atheism of Stalin and Mao as merely a quote-unquote political religion. But I was glad to read Harris. I appreciated the reminders of how a person outside of any faith community views the fringe and violent elements of religion. Many of his complaints are spot on. We should object to uncritical support for Israel, extremists like Judge Roy Moore, and the divisive diatribes of Jerry Falwell and Tim LaHaye. There are some things that civil societies should not tolerate. But when he hopes for the complete obsolescence of religion, I kept thinking about my students at Moscow State University and what they told me about the social consequences of the Soviet years that did just that. Sam Harris, The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. For film this week, I review Jesus Camp from the year 2006. I was so disheartened at the end of this film that I just sat in my seat. A woman exiting down the aisle stopped at my chair and asked, Was that a true story? When I told her that it was a documentary, she exclaimed, That's unbelievable! Jesus Camp features the Pentecostal children's minister, Becky Fisher of Missouri, in the summer camp that she runs in North Dakota. But by including footage of Ted Haggard, president of the National Association of Evangelicals, the film directors clearly intend to include the 30 million believers of the Christian right. I physically squirmed in my seat watching these anti-intellectual, self-righteous, judgmental, and bigoted people redefine the gospel in endless ways. Young Earth, intelligent design, abortion, global warming, Harry Potter, homeschooling, and even to fidelity to George Bush. In one scene in the summer camp, a cardboard life-size cutout of George Bush is brought to the front of the sanctuary, sanctuary and all the campers gather around to lay hands and pray. You might say that it's a cheap shot for the filmmakers to exploit such an easy target as Fisher. She's obese, emotional, and authoritarian. But at a minimum, the film reminds us of how prevalent and extremist the Christian right is, and how, understandably, many unchurched people view Christianity because of them. Jesus Camp, from the year 2006. And for poetry this week, for election week, 
We have posted the Credo by Daniel Berrigan, the peace activist and Jesuit priest, who was born in 1921. I can only tell you what I believe. I believe that I cannot be saved by foreign policies. I cannot be saved by the sexual revolution. I cannot be saved by the gross national product. I cannot be saved by nuclear deterrence. I cannot be saved by aldermen, priests, artists, plumbers, city planners, social engineers, nor by the Vatican, nor by the World Buddhist Association, nor by Hitler, nor by Joan of Arc, nor by angels and archangels, nor by powers and dominions. I can be saved only by Jesus Christ. Daniel Berrigan, Credo. And thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November the 12th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.